2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the education channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Ellen Cassidy, the author of Working 9 to 5, A Woman's Movement, A Labor Union, and The Iconic Movie. Many people identify 9 to 5 with the comic film, starring Jane Fonda, Dolly Parton, and Lily Tomlin, or perhaps only no Barton's hit song that served as its theme. But 9 to 5 wasn't just a comic film. It was a movement built by Ellen Cassidy and her friends. Ten office workers in Boston started out sitting in a circle and sharing the problems that they encountered on the job. In a few short years, they had built a nationwide movement that united people of diverse races, classes, and ages. They took on the corporate titans, they leafleted and filed lawsuits, and started a women-led mu- mu- union. They won millions of dollars in back pay and helped make sexual harassment and pregnancy discrimination illegal. The women office workers who rose up to win rights and respect on the job transformed workplaces throughout America. And along the way, Dolly Parton's toe-tapping song and a hit movie inspired by their work. Working 9 to 5 is a lively, informative, first-hand account packed with practical organizing lore that will embolden anyone striving for fair treatment. Ellen Cassidy was a founder of the 9to5 organization in 1973. She is the co-author with Karen Nussbaum of 9to5, The Working Woman's Guide to Office Survival, and with Ellen Bravo of the 9to5 Guide to Combating Sexual Harassment. Ellen Cassidy is a former columnist for the Philadelphia Daily News, was a speechwriter in the Clinton administration, and has contributed to the Huffington Post, Red Book, Woman's Day, Hadassah, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and other publications. Ellen Cassidy, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks so much, Tom. Uh, Thanks so much again for taking the time to talk today and really for this lively and engaging memoir of a really, truly inspiring moment in labor in American history. Uh, I usually start my interviews by asking authors to reflect on what brought them to their projects, and I promise we'll return to that question, but I'd like to begin our talk today by asking you to read from your book. If you could turn to the final chapter and the first paragraph that answers the question, what did we achieve? Okay.
1: What did we achieve? What did we fail to achieve? Starting in Boston and spreading across the country, our movement brought people together across race and class and changed the lives of working women everywhere. With surveys and hotlines, leaflets and petitions, rallies and lobbying, meetings and public gatherings, hearings and discrimination charges, contests and press releases and antics of all kinds, we took on the most powerful companies in the land. We won millions of dollars in back pay and raises, improvements in hiring and training, and career ladders that enabled women and people of color to move into higher paying jobs. We made workplaces run better to the benefit of women and men alike. We embarrassed bosses, scared them, educated them, pressured them, until they made the changes we were demanding, and we made them make their own coffee. Today, when you look back at the way offices used to function, the stereotyped images of working women at the beginning of our journey seem outdated and, well, bizarre.
2: It, it's an astonishing list, and of course it's really just the beginning of so many things that the nine to five movement accomplished um so let's uh take you back uh, I know this is this question is probably way bigger than the way that I'm asking it, but how did nine to five get started? <laughs>
1: Ten of us started sitting around in a circle in Boston. We were young women working as office workers in all kinds of companies, publishing houses, universities, banks, insurance companies, law firms. And we started talking about what was bothering us about our jobs. Low pay, unequal pay, uh, having to train men to be our own supervisors, being asked to do favors, all kinds of favors for our bosses. As one woman said, We are considered, we are called girls until the day we retire without pension. So we wanted good jobs. We wanted rights and we wanted respect.
2: So, and I hate to sound naive here, but your description of the working conditions for clerical workers here it's pretty harrowing. Um, or as my son would put it, there's just a lot of really cringy stuff here. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what it was like for, um, for women who worked in, and again, this is, you know, these are, uh, or white collar jobs in office buildings. So, so tell us a little about some of the things that women were facing then.
1: Yeah, well, sexual harassment back then was perfectly legal. Pregnancy discrimination was perfectly legal. When you got pregnant, your boss could just fire you or not include you in the health insurance plan. Office work paid less than factory work, and that was a shock to a lot of us. Our jobs were were dead end. There were no career ladders. Jobs, the job openings were not posted. You wouldn't know about them, and the boss would just look to the grapevine to find somebody from outside the company to fill a job that you were completely capable of doing. Help wanted ads were listed as help wanted male and help wanted female in the newspapers. Um, And uh, as I mentioned, the the kind of favors that women were asked to do were truly unbelievable. Sew up a hole in the boss's pants while he was wearing them. Uh, One boss uh, received a suspicious package in the mail, turned to his secretary and said, hmm, this could be a bomb. You open it. (sighs) Women were asked to carry a a vial of their boss's urine sample to a lab, um, clean up the the car after the boss went on a fishing trip and uh, got fish all over the floor, Uh, take the boss's wife to a store shopping, buy pantyhose for the wife, take care of the boss's daughter. You know, it just went on and on. And, um, you know, women who took these jobs, some women, it was very interesting, some women in office jobs at the beginning of the 70s when office work was just totally exploding as our economy switched from an entirely industrial and farm-based economy to one that was more focused on finance. Um, So the needs for office workers were just exploding. Um, But as women came pouring into that workforce, Uh, Some women were coming from families where everybody had worked in a factory and working in an office seemed like a step up. You got to wear nice clothes. You were, uh, you know, as much safer, but the pay was really not good enough. And then there were other women who had a college education who had expected to assume professional jobs in a downtown workforce and found themselves blocked from that, you know, stuck in the typing pool. And those two groups Ended up looking around at each other and thinking, you know, we have a lot in common, and we are angry, and we're going to get organized.
2: So I, I was, I had a different question, but this seems a good place to, to start, um, or a good place to jump off on this one. So one of your chapters, number four, is titled "I'm Not a Feminist, But," um, and and it seems like you know that's that sort of looking across, whatever, whatever divides seem to separate people and seeing that we have a lot in common has a lot to do with this question as well. So let's talk a little bit about that, asking people to, you know, that again, that I'm not a feminist, but.
1: Yeah. So when we started our organization, um, we put out a newsletter called Nine to Five and we distributed all over downtown Boston. And women started running into us. And we got back in touch with those women and took them out to lunch at these little cafeterias, little, you know, diners in downtown Boston. And we'd sit down and before a woman would even get into her seat, she would be saying, I just want you to know, I am not a feminist. But I'm for equal pay for equal work. I think women are not being treated fairly enough. And I think we need to get together to do something about it. And we didn't let that word feminist stand in our way. Um, I think a lot of office workers hadn't found a place for themselves in the women's movement, per se. They weren't going on demonstrations, uh, marches. the so-called bra burning that either did or did not take place at the Miss America contest in Atlantic City. But those ideas of the women's movement and earlier the civil rights movement had really seeped into every corner of American society. And people understood, began to understand, you know, I deserve better. And that's a very powerful moment.
2: Yeah, it, and it's interesting. One of the things that I really appreciated about reading your book as, as someone who's involved in labor is the way that you didn't let a lot of labels hinder your organizing efforts.
1: That's right. Um, we listened very, very carefully to how women were talking about what was bothering them on the job, and we were surprised by a lot of things. For example, um, we thought that the women who were Uh, the best dressed would be the least interested in our organization. And that turned out to be dead wrong. It was women who took their jobs very, very seriously who were the most interested in making change on the job. Um, So yeah, labels, uh, vocabulary. We didn't talk, you didn't use the word union for a long time, even though it was on our minds right from the start, we were listening to, you know, when are people going to be ready for this and what are they ready for? Um, the the workforce, the workplace was very authoritarian. So you could not stand up in your cub- cubicle and go across the room and talk to somebody else without your supervisor's head popping up and Supervisors was quite interested in what you were doing and why you were talking to that person. When we passed out our leaflets uh, at the the revolving doors of those giant skyscrapers, there would be supervisors waiting inside the lobby to snatch our leaflets right out of the hands of women. So uh, we had to devise some really new uh, tactics for women to make their voices heard safely um, without having to go storming into the boss's office in a group, which is what we thought people would be willing to do. Well, they weren't, and they weren't ready to, to start signing union cards. And it took a long time to kind of uh, figure out what style we were going to use. We used humor. Um, we used uh, anonymous hotlines. And then we would feed what we heard from those hotlines back out in leaflets in front of the biggest bank in town and say, here's what women are telling us about what it's like to work here. And bosses took notice, and so did women.
2: So I really love the fact that you use the, the, there are a couple of questions that I have based on, on what you just said, and I, I love the fact that you just use the word tactics. I, I read a review of this book that talked about your description of those tactics and, and referred to them as pranks, and, and I, I, mean, I sort of get that, and, and I've been someone who's been involved in some um, some some labor tactics that people described as a gimmick, and I, I really don't care for that those kinds of labels, right? Because it strikes me that some of the things that you were doing were really incredibly brilliant tactical strategies for, um, um, you know, giving voice in a comfortable way of, of something that people could do uh, to win back power in the workplace. So, can you tell us about some of these tactics that the nine to fivers used uh, in order to empower women? Yeah. Well, when we showed up with a posse of women on their lunch
1: hour, all you know, kind of giddy with excitement uh, in front of the office of the boss who had asked his secretary to sew up his pants while he was wearing them. Well, you could call that a tactic. You could call it a prank, an antic, a hullabaloo. Um, we didn't shy away from, from that. We knew it was funny. And uh, the boss, you know, comes out of the office all sheepish and the TV cameras are rolling. And it was, you know, just funny and it was very serious, too. And as I said, bosses and women across the city took notice about things like that. Um, I can talk a little about uh, one moment that stands out in my mind. I was organizing women in the publishing industry, which is a big business in Boston, second only to New York, And um, the uh, Boston Globe Book Festival was about to be held. And we all realized this would be a great place. Thousands of people come flocking into this big uh, arena there. And we, we could get a lot of attention there for the problems that women were experiencing on the job in publishing. So I, as the organizer, suggested, hey, let's set up a picket line. This was early in our history. And there was this moment of silence and nobody wanted to do that. And somebody else said, how about if we rent a table inside the hall and just like all the publishers are doing um, and we can pass out a survey there, which was, you know, a much sort of uh, more, you might say, timid step or uh, modest And I kept my mouth shut, and everybody agreed that that would be a great thing to do, and everyone signed up to do it, and everyone was really excited. And that was the beginning of we got all these names, people signed our surveys, they signed up for more information. It was the exact right thing to do. So that's an example. That wasn't a prank, and maybe a picket line would have been a prank. Um, so, we were flexible. And that whole experience of guiding women in publishing from the very early days when people were mad, they wanted change, but they were really scared and, and just weren't, they were very hesitant. And uh, it took a lot of sort of sensitivity for me as an organizer and learning as an organizer to kind of track them, stay by their side. And we ended up winning millions of dollars in back pay. and huge changes in the publishing industry. And it was thanks to those women's courage and them like setting their own pace and uh, just moving forward. Eventually they were sitting across from their bosses negotiating over vacations and retirement policy and uh, promotions and so on, but they wouldn't have been able to do that from day one.
2: Right. It, it it begins with getting people within their own, you know, you get them out of their comfort zone, you have to start within it, don't you?
1: That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. OK.
2: So one of the things I loved about this book is that it took me back to an ongoing debate that I had with a professor during uh, my graduate training uh, we argued over several classes about whether labor was a movement uh, or, or had, had become so thoroughly institutionalized that um, it really couldn't be a social movement anymore. So now I feel like I can go back, lay your book on the conference table, and settle the matter once and for all. Tell me a little bit about how you understand the relationship between uh, 9 to 5 as a social movement and, and 9 to 5 as part of the labor movement.
1: Nine to five has been described by uh, one historian as the coming together of two rivers, the cultural and the economic. So there was uh, some economics driving women into the workforce. And then there was the women's movement and the civil rights movement, which were uh, just powering people to think I deserve better. And those things came together. And I think we were Uh, so fortunate in being able to blend the ideas of the women's movement and the more what you might think of as cultural ideas with the the real power of operating collectively in the workforce, which is the labor movement. And um, when we first got started, we went around and, and talked to all the labor leaders we could find um, in Boston. And uh, let me say, we started in Boston. Eventually, we went nationwide, but I'm talking about how we got started in, in the Boston scene. And uh, it was like two ships passing in the night. We were sitting there saying, look, there." are Millions of office workers nationwide, 20 million women office workers are sitting there unorganized. Get out there. Let's let's do something here. They need a labor movement. They they need the benefits of unionizing, which are crystal clear. And uh, these guys, they were all guys, um, would sort of scratch their heads and say things like, well, women can't be organized uh, secretaries are in love with their bosses. They don't want a union. Um, and then one particularly clueless man said, um, you know, actually, that's that's kind of a good idea. And if I could get a, a girl in here to do my typing, I'd be out in the field organizing with you. So um, they were just, the unions were not exactly set up for uh, what we were talking about. And so we had to really chart our own way and um, create ways of, of sort of building a social movement that would then morph into the traditional National Labor Relations Board elections. And I think I, the way I see it is that throughout history, um, there have been sort of waves of, um, for example, the, the garment women at the turn of the 20th century, uh, young women just like taking the bull by the horns, going out on strike, standing on soapboxes uh, in the downtown, and transforming the labor movement into a social movement. And maybe it had been a little stodgy up to that point, but it was. It, and then it was moving. And that happened again and again. It happened uh, in the 30s and 40s with the huge sit-down strikes and the formation of the uh, CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which just took the AFL, the the more uh, traditional unions, by storm. And then you saw that again in the 70s when healthcare workers, teachers, all kinds of new workers started organizing and and bringing their own tactics to the labor movement and, and making it into a social movement. And you're seeing that again today where there's an upsurge in labor organizing that we haven't seen in generations. And support for unions is way up Higher than a spin in two generations. And you've got uh, all kinds of new workers restaurant workers, uh, baristas, warehouse workers, grad students, congressional aides all organizing in new ways with new tactics.
2: But at the same time, right, and you, you, you talk a lot about um, how there was resistance within the traditional unions to trying to organize women, but there was also some resistance on the part of women uh, in thinking about themselves as parts of unions.
1: Absolutely. Um, the whole idea... I mean, Go ahead.
2: No, it, yeah, so it swings both ways. So so tell us a little bit about how you you sort of... Uh, it got people to think of themselves in those terms.
1: Collective action was pretty much absent from the clerical workforce when we got started. Um, so, uh, you know, people tended to think, um, if I'm having a problem on the job, it's my fault. I should dress better. I should take another class. Um, it's up to me. But it's not just up to you. It's a system. And, Employers don't operate individually they you often hear when you're asking for something better on the job. Oh, if it was up to me, I would be happy to give you that raise, but it's not. It's up to personnel. I'm sorry. Uh, And they, you know, employers have the National Association of Manufacturers and the Chamber of Commerce and a million different kinds of collective organizations. And yet employers are telling uh, office workers, telling women workers, uh, just sit tight. If you'd come in here individually, I'd be happy to give you what you asked for. But you came in as a group. Why do you have to be so comfortable? I'm so sorry, this is, you know, a union is going to mess up our, our uh, collegial, uh, harmonious dealings here. You know, it it's very much to the benefit of employers to not have employees working collectively. And so we had to batter that down. And part of the way we did it, I think, was to give women the experience of working together in our organization. And uh, from that experience of sharing stories and, uh, learning to speak up and stand at a podium and do research and all that, uh, women gained the, the confidence and also got to see, you know, this, this works, this, this is fun and it works. Um, one of the things that my, uh, I was early on taught as an organizer was don't use the rock pile theory of organizing. And the rock pile theory of organizing is that you sort of go out and recruit people one by one and get them all in a room together and then decide what to do. No, that's, that doesn't work. What you do is you get going, you get moving and when people are attracted to, wow, look what they're doing and they just won something and I want to be part of that. So the experience of, of winning back pay or uh, a, a discrimination suit um or uh, getting that boss to change the policy about uh, sewing up his pants or whatever, um, that sank in and people started to see, you know, if we get together, we can make big changes.
2: and then on another level, even and you talk about this uh, in the in the chapter on a union of women by women for women about women's impression of the labor movement, that it, that the labor movement was for blue collar workers, that it was prim- primarily male. The jobs were dirty um, and and they didn't see themselves in that picture. And I, and I think even to this day, we still we still encounter this.
1: Right. Um, so. Yeah, unions were thought of as male and with good reason, and they were mostly blue-collar because the labor movement had not, the, the unions had not moved into the more white-collar jobs. That was changing. So, as I said, healthcare workers are, are service sector workers, teachers, um, government workers, more and more were starting to unionize, and that impression was changing. Um, and then as the industrial sector began to decline, uh, unions turned their attention to other kinds of work and uh, people in non-industrial jobs began to move into, into the labor movement. And today you see women in many, many of the top jobs in America's unions.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS?
2: And, and you know, and again, as you said, the 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 wave of organizing that's currently taking place. And again, I, I apologize if I'm belaboring these questions about the the sort of the the makeup of the labor movement. But this is my particular interest. Um, we, uh, the my union just recently completed uh, an affiliation with the American Federation of Teachers, which is under the umbrella of the AFL CIO, mm-hmm. and and for years uh, our union, the AAUP, resisted that affiliation, um, and and primarily because of they didn't want to be sort of in the same room as as the UAW or uh, you know the United Steelworkers or something.
1: Right. Yeah. And whose interest does that serve, that kind of disdain, (laughs) that reluctance?
2: Not ours. Um, And, 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 you know, again, you mentioned the, you know, the University of California graduate students just recently uh, won uh, a, a long strike. That you know, God love them that, that they they stuck it out for as long as they did. But they're represented by the United Auto Workers.
1: Yeah, and the United Auto Workers has been very strong in organizing university workers. And who would ever have thought that? But in fact, you know what a union is all about um, is the same on a shop floor in an auto factory as it is in a university is about making the place work rationally and making sure that people are treated right and with respect, that everybody in that workplace gets the respect that they deserve. Um, And it's it's something we encountered uh, when we started our union, um, District 925, it was called, with the Service Employees International Union. We started in 1981, and that was when Ronald Reagan was declaring war on unions with the air traffic controllers, and over the 80s we encountered enormous resistance from employers, and so did every other union. It was really the era of union-busting consultants and union-busting lawyers, and they tried every trick in the book. Delay, closing the office down, legal tactics, illegal tactics, and the National Labor Relations Board went right along with them and allowed them to do it. So um, it's it's not easy to form a union, and it's not only... the, um, you have to encounter both the sort of internal reluctance that people have and fear that people have that if they join together and, and exert power, um, they're going to get slammed on the head for it. And so there's that. And then there's the fact that they are going to get slammed on the head for it because employers really pulled out the big guns. And after uh, an era of the 1950s of fairly harmonious labor management cooperation, by the '70s and '80s, employers were saying, "We're done with that. We've got globalization to worry about, and we are not going to give an inch." Um, so, and they they uh, they were very effective. And um, now the upsurge that we're seeing is a result of a number of factors, but it's um, you know it's in the face of really intense employer opposition to unions.
2: Yeah, I, this is I. I... You, you reminds me of a story. Um, my, my grandfather was a, a local president in the UAW. And I was doing my dissertation research on graduate student unionization. And I showed him my dissertation and he, he read, you know, about the UAW. And he just, he was just astonished. And he said, who, who at Solidarity House talks to these people? <laughs> um anyway uh so one of the things uh, among the many things that i appreciated about this book is that the phrase or the slogan bread and roses Um, comes up in a number of different places. And I have always loved that particular phrase. Why do you think it's so evocative? And and what meaning did it have for the 9 to 5 movement?
1: We really considered ourselves the granddaughters of the um, organizing at the turn of the 20th century among garment workers. So these were women who were many of them fresh off the boat. They didn't speak English. Um, They were teenagers and they were fired up and wanted a better deal. You know, it's so interesting because they had so much to lose. They had very little um, and they really, really needed those jobs. And it was a matter of of really life and death for their families. And yet they had the guts to uh, just go all out and go out, you know, go on strike. And this song was written, Bread and Roses, that really encapsulated what they were asking for, which was rights and respect, you know, raises and roses. That became our slogan, raises and roses, or sometimes raises, not roses. Um, and we we really felt ourselves to be the heirs to that really uh, wonderful Uprising of of young women who worked in mills and garment factories in uh, New England and New Jersey and, and New York, um, and they got together from across all cultures and and really made huge changes in the labor movement and transformed the labor movement and transformed their own lives and transformed legislation. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Triangle Shirtwaist Fact uh, Fire. Um, which took place, I believe, in 1911, um, when uh, women were working in one of those stuffy, uh, busy factories, sewing at sewing machines, and the exits had been locked to keep women from getting out um, and, uh, you know, leaving their jobs, leaving their stations without permission. And then a fire started, and 146 women were killed. They jumped out the windows, they landed on the sidewalk. And that uh, really galvanized, that tragedy galvanized uh, new legislation and, and new attention to the concerns of, of working women.
2: Uh, so in the Academy, we talk a lot about the idea of intersectionality and of checking our privilege and, and including the voices of people of color. And after reading your book, I feel like maybe we're just all playing catch up to um, what you folks accomplished in the 1970s. So uh, how did 9to5 work to ensure that the organizing that you did was as inclusive as possible?
1: That was very important to us. And to our dismay, we found that in Boston, there were almost no women of color in the clerical workforce. Those people were showing up at the skyscrapers at 5 p.m., not 9 a.m. They were there to clean the offices, but they were not office workers. And so uh, we realized early on that if we were Hoping to build a, a movement, as we were, that was uh, multicultural, that that was inclusive, we were going to need to move to other cities, and we also we wanted to move to other cities for other reasons too. But this was one of the main drivers, and we targeted cities where there were diverse workforces, like Baltimore, Milwaukee, Cleveland, Atlanta, and we sent our organizers out there to um, to build diverse organizations. And it didn't just happen. It was very conscious. And we realized that uh, we were going to have to build organizations where everybody felt comfortable. So there were a lot of things we did. We talked about it all the time. And we We uh, carried out these these various organizing tactics, where um, we were we made sure that our staff was diverse, our leadership was diverse, our membership was diverse. We would pair a white organizer with an organizer of color, or you know, in going out to talk to people, Um, we paid special attention to welcoming people of all uh, backgrounds to the organization. That meant class as well as race. Um, and we succeeded in building a an organization that felt like home to women of all races and classes.
2: And and, and I'm really from proud the book, it, <laughs> uh?
1: I'm really proud of that. I think it's really an accomplishment.
2: Yeah, especially because you know, as you described in your book, and sometimes it was it was not easy. Like they, again, it's it's looking across the the. Things that we think of as separating us and trying to find common cause doesn't often come easy to people.
1: Yeah, I think one thing we did right was to focus on our target, focus on our boss, um, rather than uh, sit down and awkwardly uh, focus on each other and what was with each other or how each other could be improved or whatever, we linked arms and we went forward in pursuit of a common goal. And that was so exciting. And uh, it, it people just were so changed by it and transformed. And then I think some people who had never had the experience of working with uh, women from another race would sort of look at themselves and say, oh, huh, look at that. Look what I'm doing. And it came to feel comfortable. Um, Just in the in the uh, act of of taking action and, and working toward a common goal.
2: So I'm looking over my notes and I realize that I did not ask a single question about the movie. Um, <laughs> so do we want to talk a little bit about sure. uh, how, how the, how the movie came to be? Absolutely. So Jane Fonda,
1: the actor knew one of us, Karen Nussbaum from the anti-war movement. They had worked together to try to end the war in Vietnam. And Karen had been keeping Jane up to date about all our doings and all crazy things we were doing and what we were encountering. And uh, in the late seventies, Jane Fonda came to 9 to 5 and said she wanted to make a movie about office workers. And we were, of course, thrilled. And she uh, met with our members and posed a question we had never thought of asking, which was, have you ever fantasized about doing in your boss? And there was a moment of stunned silence. And then the room just exploded because it turned out everybody had. So we had (laughs) one woman who wanted to grind up her boss in a coffee grinder and another one who wanted to swivel his swivel chair out the window. Um, And those fantasies went right into the script. And the movie was a huge hit. And so was Dolly Parton's song, which is an enduring anthem uh, to this day. And both the movie and the song gave our movement, a giant boost. So uh, the atmosphere in the theaters was completely electric. Women had never seen themselves up on the screen like that, women office workers. And uh, for example, there's a scene where Jane Fonda is introduced to a huge copy machine and she's trying to make it work and the papers are flying and her lower lip is beginning to tremble and she's going crazy. And uh, people would stand up in the theater and say, push the stop button. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, critics were not that thrilled with the movie. They thought it was kind of silly, but that comedy really made its point. And you didn't need to pound people over the head. Uh, it, you, Bosses looked ridiculous in this uh, in this movie, and it became clear that the women knew what they were doing and knew how to run that company better than the boss ever did. The movie was a huge uh, money-making hit for the studio. And the thing is, after that movie, we were really catapulted into a whole new uh, era of our organization, our movement, because up to that point, we had been engaged in debate with people. Are women really not treated equally? Do women want jobs that are higher than the lowest jobs on the career ladder? Um, Does it make sense for, maybe it does make sense for a boss to ask a secretary to do whatever pops into his head. And after the movie, we had won that debate and it was time for us to consolidate our power. And that's when we, our, our union got off the ground.
2: Um, so I want to come back to, again, this is the question that I usually begin with, but I think this is probably the right place to ask it. Um, there's obviously a lot more that we could talk about in this book. Let me ask, what is it, why this book and why now? That is, what is it about this particular cultural moment that made you want to revisit this story?
1: Um, well, I got the idea for this book, the day that um, the day after President Trump was inaugurated, and the streets of Washington D.C., which is where I was living at the time, were completely packed with thousands and thousands of women who were stood there in the freezing cold for hours and hours on the Women's March, and wearing those those pink pussy hats, mm-hmm. um, and I thought, I looked at these, some people were staying in my house, women who had never been on a demonstration before, who just felt they had to be there. And it reminded me of the women in the early seventies who really had not felt comfortable demonstrating. They didn't think of themselves that way, but they were really eager to join our organization. And I thought, this is is something, this is a moment, and I want to give something to women in in our era. And so I wrote the kind of book that I was hungry for when I was starting out as an organizer. Um, and I wanted to convey what it was like to be working in a tiny beehive of an office for 12 hours a day and full of dreams and passion and energy and what it was like to see women joining together and growing together and winning together And But I also wanted to convey the hard parts. I wanted it to be real. I wanted to talk about my doubts and how sometimes I wanted to throw in the towel. And I wanted to also talk about how becoming a social change agent in some ways dovetailed with the project of me as a young woman learning how to be a girlfriend. So now, to my surprise, I'm hearing from people who tell me they read my book as a love story. (laughs) And oh really? Who knew? You know, cuz there is the the story. There is that
2: Yeah, that's that's in there.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. And so um I wrote the book for for um activists for um volunteers for union members and people who wish they were union members for young people who are just starting out and also older people wanting to remember. And um, Liz Shuler, the president of the afl cio has described this book as uh, a must read for anyone needing a dose of inspiration. And I think we need that right now. And um, so I'm really glad to to be able to provide that to people.
2: But for me, it was more than just inspiration, although it, it certainly was that it, it it also. And maybe maybe I can ask you to reflect a little on this. As you said, there's so much union organizing going on right now. Um, Even even before uh, Trump left office, we had the the red wave strikes taking place among teachers in uh, really traditionally Republican states. I interviewed um, Leo Casey of the of the AFT a little while ago about those. Um, What lessons do you think that some of these these new movements for uh, for for labor change can learn from, from what you accomplished uh, with 9 to 5?
1: That's the key question, right? Um, so you write a book like this, and uh, my book is packed with actual tactics you can learn from and step by step and how you do it and all that, um, kind of woven in, not You know, it's not a chapter about how do you do this, but um, from reading it, you can see "Hmm, there's some good ideas. But it was very important to me to emphasize that um, we did it the way we did it because that was our time and that was who we were. But um, I think every generation has to invent its own tactics and uh, find its own path. So I'm really hoping that what people will take from this is... Um, that we we had an open mind. We we kept challenging our assumptions. We went forward. If this didn't work, we tried something else, and we we found our own path. And I think that's what everybody has to do. So uh, what I'm there for is uh, giving. Sure, here's here's how we did it, and this is what worked for us. But you know, take this and uh, take the inspiration. And do what you need to do. Um, we didn't have the Internet. We didn't have social media. And today you see um, Amazon workers and Starbucks workers using the tools that are available today, which were not available to us. So, and that, that's what's so fascinating and, and so rewarding to see that happen.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, if this is a this is a really fascinating time for for labor. Um, so, I feel like it's a little unfair to ask this this last question. But before we wrap up today, um, given all that you've accomplished, so what's next? That is, what can we expect next from Ellen Cassidy? Uh,
1: well, I think of a book as the center of a communications campaign. So, when you are finished with the book, that doesn't mean you just dust off your hands and you're on to the next project. No, I'm uh, just having a ball talking to people like you and speaking to book clubs and unions and steward trainings and uh, labor studies classes and community organizing classes and uh, people wherever I can find them. I'm doing a lot of um, Zoom meetings and podcasts and some in-person things. And, um, it's, it's just, it's exciting to me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a writer and I work very hard at, at my craft, but I'm also an organizer and as an organizer, you do some writing, you do a lot of speaking and you do a lot of face to face. So, um, and that's, and I love that. So, um, I don't have an idea for a new book, if that's what you were um, thinking about, but um, I've been writing for, I just had an article published in Teen Vogue. I was so thrilled, which is, I don't know if you know that publication, but it's, um, it really is a groundbreaking uh, publication for young women um, and just brings a huge amount of great history and education to, to their pages or their online pages. Um, so I'm, I'm deep into this particular topic for quite a while, I think.
2: It's funny that you mentioned Teen Vogue, but I, I've, so again, I've done a lot of research on uh, graduate worker unions, and I just downloaded something from Teen Vogue about, um, and, and I've always thought about this, the resident assistants at universities who are undergraduates mm-hmm. who are beginning to form unions. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to to perusing that when I when after classes get started.
1: Yeah,
2: great. Um, so Ellen Cassidy, thank you again for your time today, and really for uh, a wonderful book. Um, as I said, or or you know, as you mentioned, I think it's really inspiring. Um, in somewhere, I think in here it is a kind of a, a toolkit for labor organizers, but more, as you said, it's that spirit of. Um, Trying different things and and keeping an open mind and really listening to what people are telling you um, that that makes this work so important.
1: Yeah, I just would like to end with um, quoting an old labor song that says, freedom, freedom is a hard one thing. You've got to work for it, fight for it, day and night for it, and every generation's got to win it again.
2: Perfect. Thank you. Once again, my guest today has been Alan Cassidy, the author of Working 9 to 5, A Women's Movement, A Labor Union, and the iconic movie, New from Chicago Review Press. My name is Tom DeSena, and you are listening to The New Books Network.